Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, March 12th the Nevertheless Misogyny Persisted edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlett. I'm professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And compliant with best health practices during this time of coronavirus, we're all recording from separate locations. <laughs> it's a new era for the waves. So Marsha, I believe, is recording in a hotel room? Absolutely, in New York City. Oh, it's so close and yet so far. Yeah, June and I are both in our respective usual studios, and Nicole is in her home studio, a.k.a. home <laughs> <laughs> I'm at home in Flatbush, Brooklyn. <laughs> um, well, I'm glad we were still able to gather through the magic of the internet and telephone, which are still blessedly working. Yeah, I guess who knows how long this this will have to maintain our distance from each other, possibly indefinitely. But uh, I think hopefully our listeners will bear with us. Um, You'll still get a great show. This week, we're going to start off with a discussion about the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, which is hurtling toward its inevitable conclusion, Joe Biden. Then we'll talk about the gendered effects of the coronavirus and how it's affecting home life. And finally, we're going to review Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, a new film about a teenage girl who has to travel with her cousin to obtain an abortion. And Nicole, what's our Slate Plus segment this week? Our Slate Plus this week is, is it sexist that Tulsi Gabbard has been treated like a joke and left out of mainstream assessments of the presidential race? Here's a little snippet of that conversation. I was going to start with it's not sexist because everything she has done is ridiculous. But as Mm -hmm. I listen to this conversation, I think it is, unfortunately. (gasps) Because as you're talking about her, I realize that I know nothing of what you speak of because I've paid no attention to her. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether the fact that we're not going to talk about Tulsi Gabbard in our next segment is sexist, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right. So since our last episode, the Democratic presidential field has narrowed considerably. There's just about two candidates left. June, what's the story here? Yeah. So last Tuesday, March 3rd, which was known as Super Tuesday, certainly wasn't super for the female candidates who were left in the race at that point. Uh, After Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders split the 14 states and Mike Bloomberg won American Samoa, the rest of the candidates took their turns in withdrawing from the race. Bye-bye, Pete Buttigieg. Bye, Mike Bloomberg. Au revoir, Amy Klobuchar. And finally, Elizabeth Warren suspended her campaign, leaving three straight white septuagenarian men to battle it out for the presidency. And like the results from those 14 states left no doubt. Voters apparently preferred those old guys over the other candidate. I mean, Elizabeth Warren came in third in her home state of Massachusetts, after all. But speaking for myself and apparently 
for lots of other women, judging from op-eds and just conversations, it was really depressing. Um, we've talked about electability many times on this show, about the challenges that women, smart, effective, persuasive women face in getting people to vote for them. We've rehearsed all the factors. We've talked them through, dismissed some, acknowledged some others. But it was still devastating to me to see how the historically diverse group of candidates that stood on the stage for the first debate was whittled down to uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And as you've said, Christina, it's basically Joe v. Bernie at this point, you know, and the voters have spoken. It seems to be a choice between the past and a sort of uncertain future. Uh, so I guess I do understand why people are voting as they are, but I just can't get out of my feelings for a while. Uh, and I'm just mostly feeling really bummed about it. Yeah, this is really interesting because I know, June, you've talked a fair bit about how you actually like Bernie Sanders quite a bit. I mean, he's he's one of the only people on the stage who really speaks to the urgency of, you know, our healthcare crisis, social inequality and economic inequality. But that being so, and I, I like him too, it's really hard to um, talk about sort of the sexism in the race and why having a woman president matters to some of us without diminishing the importance of policy and the very, like, enormous differences between an America under President Sanders and an America under President Biden. And I think there's an effort among some Sanders supporters or a frustration among them to act like representation and diversity in politics doesn't matter or that it's, you know, being sad that we're not going to have a woman president for another four years, probably eight years at the very least, is is besides the point and sort of a waste of time when we're still in a primary that, you know, after last night, you know, um, we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, it, it really does seem like it's going to be Joe Biden. But still, you know, people are sort of saying, why didn't Elizabeth Warren get out of the race sooner, blaming her a little bit for Sanders losing to Joe Biden in a lot of these um, states in Super Tuesday, which I, I don't think there's actually a math mathematical case to be made <laughs> that it would have made a difference. But, you know, Sarah Jones wrote a piece in New York Magazine looking at the fact that Warren's supporters are now split between Bernie and Biden since she dropped out. And She's, she makes the assumption that a lot of these people who are now with Biden instead of with Sanders are, you know, more concerned with gender representation for purely aesthetic or symbolic purposes than for substantive reasons. Because if they were concerned with policy, they might be going with Bernie Sanders since his policy positions are closer to Warren's than Biden's are. But I also think it's possible that some of these people are looking at the way things are shaking out and this enthusiasm for Joe Biden, which is surprising even to me, and I'm a very cynical person, and and are now worried about Bernie Sanders' electability. Like, I think there are a lot of reasons why people support political candidates. They don't always have to do with policy. I don't think that's the right way to choose a political candidate. But I also think it's befuddling to me that, that people are now on the internet you know, saying that it was Elizabeth Warren's responsibility to try to save Bernie Sanders before most states even had a chance to vote. This entire conversation is so upsetting because we still don't have an appropriate vocabulary that captures the importance of representation and of substance at the same time. So it becomes reduced to, well, you just want a woman to be president. Or, well, the problem with Elizabeth Warren is 
this competence is unnerving and women aren't allowed to be competent and so we can't have a woman president. And I think the nuance of how people on the political left, whether it's a, you know, kind of like a moderate left to a radical left, I think the anxiety about the election is making it really hard for people to be thoughtful about kind of how misogyny and racism exist on the left in ways that are convenient to it. And so, yes, a Barack Obama can be president. And yes, it is still hard to elect a woman from that political perspective, because I ultimately think that the first woman president will be a conservative. And I know Christina on the show has said it's been a, it will be Ivanka Trump. And I have no reason to <laughs> Good not keep that also. <laughs> because I think, I think there's a way that supporting a Black candidate can help mediate the anxiety of being worried about being a racist. But I don't think that what we've seen is that people are as concerned about their perceived misogyny. And so I think some of the tropes of assessing female candidates still reign in this very strange way. And so I think as we go into the primary season and people are talking about who Biden or Bernie should think about for VP, a lot of people keep on saying, well, Biden should pick Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams. And, you know, the question of does Bernie Sanders pick someone like Nina Turner? I, I think that people are overestimating the need, quote unquote, to have a woman be part of the discourse, because I don't think people use elections to sort out their internalized or externalized misogyny the way they do sometimes around race. But there's no denying that misogyny is in place here because oh, you know, absolutely. what this country is telling us is that they would rather have two to three men who are in various levels of decline as far as their health is concerned, and two of them are ragingly incompetent, than to possibly elects a woman who has clear plans, detailed plans. Yes, she flopped on the Medicare for all policy, but she still had detailed plans in place or what could have been in place. And everyone's just like, oh, oh no, it's a woman. Her woman brain is going to destroy us. Never mind that, you know, one candidate can barely string sentences together. But I don't, I don't, I don't understand. It's very disappointing. It's very frustrating. And there's no way that people can deny that sexism is in place here. And if they are trying to deny it, maybe they're just in denial themselves. Like there's just, they're just like in some other world that is not real. To me, it's, it's this, the sad, well, a sad part of it, because there's a lot of sadness to go around, is that all of the people who've been decrying identity politics and how, you know, this focus on identity politics is so harmful. Basically, the choice of Joe Biden is purely about identity politics mm -hmm. because it's certainly not about his debate performance yep. or his ground game or his policies or his his amazing oratory on the stump. So what is it? And I get I absolutely understand that, you know, Medicare for all or some way of providing health care in the way that every other developed country does to people instead of this insane system, and I'm making serious scare quotes there, that we have in this country is going to be disruptive. I get that it is going to 
cause a lot of unrest. But all these people who all of this talk about people who really like their health insurance, I would love to meet one because I've never met one. Health insurance in this country sucks because health insurance <laughs> is not health care. And all of this talk about I love my health insurance. You shouldn't because health it has nothing to do with your health. And it, it just it's there's so much enraging enraging and i you know it also enrages me that the thing that that really got elizabeth warren was that she did not want to keep supporting the health insurance companies and uh, i'm going to go into a spiral so somebody please interrupt me <laughs> i i think what this is telling me it's it's driving home the fact that fear plays a very large role yeah in people's voting behavior. The fact that people are able to vote for somebody like Donald Trump, despite the fact that, you know, it would have been in in their best interest not to have Trump as president because he animated this fear in them of the other, of immigrants, of, you know, the D.C. swamp. On the left or, you know, the center left on on at least the the left end of American politics, I think fear is animating Mm -hmm. a lot of people to vote for Joe Biden, too. I mean, this is purely anecdotal, but I know plenty of people in my parents' generation who, like Elizabeth Warren, like Bernie Sanders in terms of their policies, but worry that Bernie Sanders won't be able to beat Donald Trump because other people don't yeah. like his policies and think he's too extreme. And my former colleague on the Outward podcast, Brandon Tensley, went down to South Carolina where he's from and spoke to a lot of voters there. And, um, you know, a lot of black voters, especially older black voters, are saying Bernie Sanders didn't do a great job talking to black voters from the perspective of black voters, but more from the perspective of somebody who needs to get black voters on board. I think Warren also did really well with black activist leaders, but not black voters on the ground. You know, she did really poorly with black voters. And so I think that's another lesson that candidates on the left have to learn because there's absolutely no way to win the nomination or the presidency without the support of black voters. And I think that's hopefully when the Democratic Party tries to learn a lesson from this, and I hope that it does, I hope that they don't look at Joe Biden as a success story, that that's something that they'll look on too. I think that what's interesting about the analysis after Warren's decision to get out of the campaign is like who she resonates with. And I think the point that you make, Christina, is important. Elizabeth Warren is legible to, I think, some of the Black women activists who came out for her, the Black women for Warren, because she is like your favorite professor in college. (laughs) And I think for people who have kind of a left-minded ideology, she is the kind of interesting person you go to her like book talk. And I think it's a reminder of how, while these types of elites have a lot of power, they're very few in number. And Mm. this is this strange thing that I think for people who are just like, I can't believe she wasn't able to do it. She wasn't able to do it. I, I don't think because she was a terrible candidate. I think she was probably the most articulate person on the stage and she was well prepared. But this idea of her legibility, it's just not there, I think, when we think of a broad-based electorate. And I'm not saying that the other guys are relatable (laughs) at all, but I am saying that I think from the perspective of people who are in politics, analyze politics, and follow it, Warren works for them because Warren is a familiar presence. 
And it reminds me of some of the early days of Obama before he really caught his stride, where people would say, you know, he's very professorial. I don't get this guy. And he kind of grew in his ability to do that. But I think he was able to do that because he's a man. And I don't know if women, when they have the capacity to be charming or gracious or whatever, if that then gets converted into votes. Yeah, I saw um, a tweet where this man said he was voting for Warren because it was time for the country to have a nurturing figure in the White House. And so he went on to this, like, <laughs> you know, this tweet thread of, of you know, he was going to vote. Basically, he was casting a maternal vote, you know, like, oh, I need a, I need a mother, um, you know, in the White House. And so, of course, people pushed back on that. But I also wonder if a lot of people were thinking that they were thinking, you know, she was too much of your like a second grade teacher um, who was kind of smothering a little bit. And I wonder if people just couldn't vibe with that. I don't I don't know. But it's very frustrating when I think about the fact that. <sighs> The way people are punishing the country because we elected a black man in, into the White House, um, because that's all that I can see. That's all that like it breaks down to me. It's like, you know, people are just throwing a tantrum and wanted to, you know, they're like, well, if Obama can do it, anybody can do it. And so that's what's happened. And that seems like what's about to happen again. And I'm just like, I'm so disappointed. And if there was a way that I could leave the country, I would, but I feel like wherever I go is going to be more of the same. I think Michigan is also an interesting case study for us to look at. So the Michigan presidential primary happened on Tuesday night. Bernie Sanders lost it in a landslide. He won it narrowly in 2016. So what that tells me is that it's possible that a lot of Michigan voters aren't necessarily motivated by policy, but maybe one way to interpret this is that they were more excited to vote for a man than a woman in 2016. And in 2020, they were choosing between two men and and decided they didn't want Bernie Sanders. That's one way to interpret it, which suggests to me that maybe one way to get a leftist into office is to have that conservative woman running against him in the presidential race. And, you know, maybe when the right nominates Ivanka Trump or Nikki Haley or whatever, that's when a Bernie Sanders, you know, if he's still alive at that point, or, you know, a, a President AOC can be president. <laughs> well, I, no, she's a woman, too. Uh, another <laughs> another man from the left. Like, that's how we're going to get a true progressive presidency is oh by making people vote against a woman. I mean— um, just, I'm um, just, there's no bad ideas in a brainstorm, just spitballing here. <laughs> I think, and to me, I guess ultimately the, the saddest conclusion of this is that Americans seem to be saying that they really don't want Medicare for all. They, maybe they truly do like their Fakakta system uh, of, of, again, more scare quotes, healthcare, because that is an, also another interpretation of like, yeah, okay, yeah, Michigan voted for Bernie last time. But that was also in it before Obamacare has actually become more popular in the years since. I don't hmm. even know, but um, I can't help thinking that it, that is also true. And that honestly depresses me even more than the misogyny. I just want to say one thing about the kind of postmortem on the Warren campaign. 
And I feel this way too. She kind of lost her stride on Medicare for All. And then I think when the story leaked about how, you know, she had a conversation with Bernie and he said, I don't know if a woman should be the candidate. I felt like the campaign kind of lost some ground. And then she completely shamed Michael Bloomberg and she was back. Mm-hmm. Those kind of missteps and surges, a man's campaign can weather those storms. People act like the whole enterprise was burned up with these two mistakes. And it's like, well, she couldn't carry, she couldn't come back. But she can't come back because women are not allowed to come back from anything. I mean, if the Biden campaign fell under the weight of its own incompetency at every turn, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so I think that there's a way that we have to also recognize that it's, as she says, the system is so rigged that there really is no analysis that makes sense without saying women can't make mistakes. And even when they're perfect, they still lose. Thank you, America. <laughs> and that Bloomberg <laughs> moment is is a really telling moment to me when we try to talk about why representation and diversity in politics matters. I think that this race is forcing us to consider why it matters and that it's not just about, you know, it's not a numbers game about we need such and such a number of women in politics before it's equal and then we can sort of congratulate ourselves on being a non-sexist society. I think it's important to think about why we want representation and diversity in politics. And that Bloomberg moment is one reason why, because I don't think that a man would have done that or could have done that with the same persistence. I can't believe I just used that word to describe Elizabeth Warren. Nevertheless, she <laughs> persisted. And and speaking from a place of knowledge and from the position of somebody who has certainly been subject to some of those same sexist insults that Michael Bloomberg used against his employees. You know, she was able to talk about pregnancy discrimination as a credible messenger who has experienced that. She basically got Chris Matthews fired because she, when she was talking to him about, you know, why Bloomberg would have an incentive to lie about being sexist in the workplace and harassing people and why why the women wouldn't have incentive to do so, to lie about what happened. You know, it's not that a man couldn't do that. It's that I don't think they would, and they usually don't. And there's a reason why we're talking about sexism more in this race, because more women are in the race to be able to bring it up, and not just because they're the targets of it. You know, Amy Klobuchar also spoke about the fact that if any woman had had Pete Buttigieg's experience, she would have never made it to the presidential debate stage. But, but also because sexism and gender discrimination is a political issue. Mm -hmm. And when women are on the stage, we just hear about it more. Amen. (sighs) On that note, looking forward to continue talking about Joe Biden, our our beloved presidential (laughs) candidate for the next several months. Waves listeners, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this issue. Let us know what you've been hearing, what you've been thinking. We'd love to feature some of your comments on the show. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Coronavirus. Wash your hands, everybody. I'm just going to start with that PSA. It's an epidemic that is dominating the news. There have been more than 4,000 deaths around the world. In the U.S., there have been less than three dozen at this taping, but it's already affecting many of our everyday lives. Long-planned trips are getting canceled. Chinese restaurants are seeing a drop in business. 
colleges are sending students home at Slate, as at many other companies that can manage to do so, we're all working from home. Or as of tomorrow, I'm currently in the very empty office right now. (laughs) For a lot of people, this will all end up being a relatively minor inconvenience. But any health crisis or any upending of normal social functioning ends up illuminating existing cracks in support systems and existing ways that our social and economic structures are failing people. So as usual, the brunt of the collateral damage that comes from this coronavirus epidemic will end up falling on people who rely on public services or people who are incarcerated or live in close quarters and on women who play a disproportionate role in parenting and home life and make up a disproportionate number of care workers. So the BBC had a really good piece on how this epidemic and home quarantine in particular is falling hardest on women in China. So women's lives are being affected disproportionately by school closures because they're primary caregivers. Activists in China say that there's been an increase in domestic violence and fewer places for victims to go because people are cooped up in their homes and shelters are being closed or turning people away. Domestic workers who rely on employers for hygiene supplies, wipes, sanitizer, masks, they're not necessarily getting them. They can't get time off or they're made to care for their sick employers. And there's even going to be longer term economic consequences for women because they tend to be overrepresented in hospitality and retail and other service sector work that um, may be gone for good, depending on how the economy bounces back from this epidemic, or their jobs might sort of rematerialize sporadically. So not only are people working in the service sector at greater risk of contracting the virus, they're also more likely to be out of work because of it and less likely to have protections like paid sick days. So there are a lot of ways in which the effects of this epidemic, like any crisis, are falling disproportionately on women. I'm curious what you all have been reading and thinking about on this topic. I think there's something we have to also remember, and I'm glad you brought up care workers, Christina, because a lot of the concern about the elderly and nursing homes, the staff at a lot of these facilities aren't necessarily people with college or graduate degrees who are doing direct care for the elderly. It's people like my mom, who for many years was like a nurse's aide, people who are hourly workers, people who are not organized in unions in many parts of the country. And so it's not just the people who have this kind of contact. It's the people who are doing the double shifts, who are then having to feel at risk at work and then coming home and having to manage the household. But I think the economic impact of when you have a workforce that has very few labor rights in the middle of a pandemic, the gendered issues of work rise to the surface. And I think the Sanders campaign has the language to talk about this as a political issue for 2020. But I'm really curious if this then rises to the level of public policy reflection of what happens when you don't have these secure systems, the disproportionate effect on women. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what stood out to me was the the effect on women reporting domestic violence and getting help for domestic violence because, like you mentioned, Christina, not only are the shelters um, even more limited, but police response is you know decreasing as well because they feel like, well, we can't go into the houses. We can't, you know, everyone's quarantined. We can't go and answer these calls. 
and, you know, domestic violence calls, you know, it takes a lot to get the police out um, to your house already for that. So I'm really concerned about what's going to happen to these women who have to sit in these situations um, with their help even more limited. And I don't think that that's really been talked about as much as the, you know, concern about them being the childcare um, support in the homes and things like that. So I would be interested in seeing more people talk about the women who need to get away from their abusive partners and what what options are there for them. Yeah, especially when people are under quarantine or, you know, there are fewer public transit options or or whatever, as we've been seeing, you know, in places like Italy and China where people really aren't allowed to leave. Yeah, you know, this is a, a more sort of privileged aspect of this, but I do wonder how the fact that there's, you know, I I think at this point, at least in the US, people haven't been barred from going to work, but there is... You know, there's a very strong statement that you really should not come into work, that you should work from home. And and that's a message that's going out to both men and women in those companies so that it's not the, you know, often when there's some situation where like, oh, caregiving is going to be thrown off. You know, there's this expectation, which we will just accept that that women will do more of that. Now, when the men and the women are at home and the kids are at home. I think this is a time where there's really much smaller opportunity for unequal homework, unequal taking care of kids. I think this might be an opportunity for some consciousness raising, I guess is what I'm what this boils down to. And I just wonder, I wonder if that really is going to happen or if or if people are going to fall into old gendered patterns. You know, my work's more important. My work earns us more money. It's kind of hard. I've done this and it's kind of hard to have two people working from home. And I've not done it with kids in the house. So I can only imagine the level of complication that that introduced. So I just, I'm trying to look for something positive here. Maybe, maybe it'll change the way people behave. When you say consciousness raising, do you mean among women who will see their male partners come home and continue to not do a lot of work or among men who will come home and be like, yeah, I guess I should do some of that housework. <laughs> I was thinking the latter, but you know what? I think I'm you're right. The Probably the former is more likely. Yes. Yeah. I think that it'll just become ever more obvious when everyone's at home who's doing the majority of the work and who's not. But yeah, I'm also just worried about what it's going to do to my and our relationships to just be cooped up in close quarters with everybody for who knows how long. I mean, I I go stir crazy if I don't leave the house for a day. And oh now it's going to be, you know, me and, you know, I'm on work from home now. I'm sure my wife's job will have her start working from home soon. And yeah, I don't know. We have a very small apartment and <laughs> we're going to have to instate some sort of like, let's work in separate corners so that we don't just are not all up in each other's business all day long. One of the things that I think is interesting is the number of public school systems that are not closing. And I think some of it is a belief that children aren't as susceptible. And there's been a lot of articles about how the New York public school system, for example, believes that, you know, it can't close because there's so many children who don't have homes. There's questions about the availability of meals. And I think that this is, again, like another wonderful opportunity to think not only about the gendered nature of the teaching profession and of school nursing, but also kind of 
the ways that families are living and the kind mm-hmm. of struggles that people have when public systems aren't available. I mean, to think that we are whittling ourselves down in a primary season with so many people with so much wealth and these questions about Medicare for all and all of these questions about what kind of public services we have in the moment where we see the importance of public services and the importance of understanding who not only is in the service sector jobs, but also then who does it in homes. This could have been an excellent opportunity for a woman candidate for president, perhaps, to um, tie all these pieces (laughs) together. I'm not over the first segment, clearly. (laughs) I wanted to talk about another difference that we've noticed with the um, coronavirus is that men are worse at bathroom hygiene than women. Um, because yes. I remember when I saw, I saw a graphic that was showing how there was uh, someone in Manhattan who uh, tested positive and there, it was a graphic showing like how he then infected the other people in his life. And most of the images that were representing people, they were like real life silhouettes. They were men. And so I was like, oh, well, it looks like men are getting this more than women. And then I started reading further and, it, you know, it became clear that men are not washing their hands in the bathroom when they're coming out because their excuse is my dick is clean. And, you know, <laughs> your dick is not clean. It's a sweaty mess down there and you need Ugh. to wash your hands. Um, hopefully you're touching the urinal to flush it. You know, there's... I did, I don't know why men are confused about where their hands go, but um, if men could wash their hands, that would be great. Uh, And use soap and not just like run the tip of their fingers under the water. That would be amazing. Um, But it really, it also reminded me of um, Tennessee, my home state has started to announce that there are cases there are positive cases of coronavirus there. And looking at the county's, Surrounding Nashville, my hometown and the capital, it's where all the quote unquote rich people live. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are saying, well, it's rich people because they have the ability to travel and go to these different countries and then come back and bring whatever, whatever. I don't know necessarily. Obviously, that's anecdotal. I don't know what what that means across class lines. But I do think it's interesting that that's what people immediately kind of latched on to um, looking at who's affected and how they're being affected, um, you know, by class, by um, their jobs and things like that. It might also be that they have access to testing mm-hmm. and that there are people in other neighborhoods who just don't and so don't know if they have coronavirus. Right. Or people don't have proper health insurance right. or they, you know, they're at that beginning of the year and they're still meeting their deductible. This is, it's all coming back. It's all coming back to that first topic. Everything, <laughs> everything, I tell you. I, I just want to say about men washing their hands, I just want to share a couple numbers for our listeners. So a 2009 study found that only 31% of men and only 65% of women wash their hands after using public restrooms. Another study in 2013 of 4,000 people in Michigan public restrooms found that 14.6% of men, so a little bit less, didn't wash their hands. 35.1% wet their hands but didn't use soap. Women also washed their hands for longer and were about twice as likely to wash their hands. So I think this coronavirus, in addition to exposing the holes in the social safety net, is also exposing all of the things that have always been bad but people have <laughs> gotten away with, like going on cruises or, or you know, men touching their own genitals and then going on to 
pass you a slice of pizza or something. Oh, like people have gotten away with this for far too long. So I don't want to make light of this epidemic, but I'm really hoping that a lot of these practices end up meeting their demise because people are forced to take a second look at their behavior. Right on. Yikes. Listeners, tell us how you're coping with the virus in your household and what effect it's having on your lives. I'm sure we'll be talking about this for weeks to come as well. Our email address is thewaves at slate.com. Okay, our last topic for today, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's a new film written and directed by Eliza Hittman. Marsha, tell us about it. Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always is a film about a teenage girl who seeks an abortion. And the film tries to capture the complications that occur when states have parental consent requirements for minors seeking abortion. It looks at the challenges of actually traveling across state lines to access care. And in a very rare turn for a film about an unwanted pregnancy, it really focuses on the experience. It follows the main character and her cousin as they go to New York and they go to Planned Parenthood. And I think it's unusual for a film to talk about the procedure and all of the support that goes around it. And it also sticks very closely to the teenage girl's experience Mm -hmm. rather than bringing in other characters into the narrative about abortion. Right, because we don't find out who the father of the child is, and that's not the most important thing with this movie. And I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it because it's, it's one of those very quiet movies where everything happens and nothing. So there's not Mm. going to be, you know, a lot of party scenes or something like that. This is not a hijinks kind of movie or any, you know, a teenage hijinks movie. It's, it's just, you're just sitting watching this teenager be a teenager she doesn't Mm -hmm. want to talk to anybody Mm -hmm. she really she really has conversations she's um you know she'll just grunt out monosyllabic sentences um (laughs) and it's a little frustrating watching it because you're kind of like okay let's let's move on but I thought that that captured teenage girl life very well because I definitely remember just being this kind of miserable person that did not want anybody talking to me And one thing that I really appreciated about the movie was how it showed that some men are predators everywhere you go. Um, You know, there's someone at home who's making your life miserable. There's someone at your job who is hitting on you. There's someone, you know, um, while you're taking a trip who tries to get into your life. It's just like everywhere you go, there's a, a man that is trying to, I don't want to say take control of your body, but trying to have some kind of effect on your life. And I think this did it better than any other movie where sometimes it could be a little heavy handed talking about the dangers of men. But I think this movie did that very well. Yeah, I thought it was really strong how, you know, as you said, men are always messing with these girls Uh, in one form or another. It's gross or it's scary or it's just tiresome. Meanwhile, there are these huge things in their life that they have no one except, you know, another close teenage girl friend or in this case cousin 
to help you with. You're alone dealing with all this stuff. Autumn, this girl, does have a family. Her mother seems to love her, but she's got a lot on her plate. You know, she's got a, a husband who I don't think is Autumn's father, but we don't really find out who's, he drinks a lot. He's, you know, he's, he's kind of scary. He's creepy. And the mom is just busy. She's dealing with the man. She's dealing with other kids. Work is just a place where, you know, they just want you to work. They don't, they don't give you any support. And then like men lick your hands when you're handing over the money at the end of the day. And and it's not to say that women are always super supportive. One of the really powerful episodes in the movie is Autumn, you know, figures she's pregnant. She goes to a center in her town and it's not at all clear. The messaging is not clear, but we learn that it's one of these uh, anti-abortion centers and that, in fact, they deceive her about how, how far along she is. You know, and, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of quietly didactic film. They don't say things, but they show you all the kind of horrible situations that young women particularly can get into where, you know, she's lied to about how pregnant she is. And therefore, it is so much harder, even though she is able, which is crazy for someone with no money and no support to get from her town in Pennsylvania to New York City. Then she finds out because of this, she has to stay two nights. She has to be there for three days. They have no money. They have no place to stay. You know, the kind of the the scale of that task of figuring out how to stay in New York City, stay safe, say, you know, just just to survive so that you can have this procedure is so powerful. Um, and the kind of you know, the way that they get through that is extremely believable. Um, and it's also interesting that, like, that's not the worst problem. New York is, you know, New York is an intimidating place when you are a teenager with no money that doesn't really know where you know, anything about this place except a couple of addresses. But that's not scary. And that is believable to me because there's something that's really bloody scary. And that's needing to have a baby when you're 17, when you have no way of being able to handle that. And I thought that was really wonderfully presented. Yeah. In some ways, I think I was the wrong audience for this film. I, f I did feel it was quite heavy handed on the uh, look how bad the crisis pregnancy center is and look how helpful the abortion clinic is and look at all the different laws that can come into play to affect a young woman's experience. Like, I think about that stuff and write about that stuff yeah. all the time. But the thing I did like about it is it, it was a very unique and true-to-life depiction of this time in adolescence where you have a lot of responsibility in some ways and no freedom or uh, trust or power in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think as a culture, we're still trying to figure out how to think about and talk about the sexuality of teenage girls. I remember when a woman came out and said that Roy Moore had pursued her as a, as a romantic and sexual prospect when she was 14 years old. People started sharing photos of themselves when they were 14 years old to sort mm -hmm. of drive home, like, look how young these people are. We, you know, the age of consent in some states is 16, but when you're talking about the responsibility and maturity of somebody who's 14, like, you know, she's still a child. And at the same time, somebody who's 17, like Autumn is in this film, you know, she still is able to take care of herself. She's a subject and an agent in this film, which I really appreciated. And, you know, she she knows what she wants. She very clearly is not 
ready to have a child. It's uh, the question of whether or not to get an abortion is not discussed in this film. I mean, she knows that she can't have a baby. Mm -hmm. And parental consent laws, which a majority of states have, or a majority of states require parental involvement. So in some states, you just have to let your parents know. You don't have to have their consent. But a majority of states, 37, require parental involvement. They've historically been very popular. The most recent poll I could find was from 2005. 70% of people approved of parental involvement laws. They're a little bit of a conundrum because they expose a little bit of a duality of thinking around what teenage girls are capable of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we feel that they're responsible enough to have a baby that they don't want, but we don't feel they're responsible enough to choose to not have a baby that they don't want. Mm -hmm. And I think this film does a really good job of poking holes in the narrative of teenage girls as people who need their parental protection when actually in a lot of cases parents aren't protecting their mm -hmm. teen girls and and can't protect them from everything. And in this story, it's very clear that she is pursuing what's best for her in spite of the fact that she doesn't have that sort of support or protection. I think of this movie as if um, a group of radical feminists took over like the after-school special. <laughs> and now that I said after-school special, a good chunk of the listeners won't know what I'm talking about. It was a show <laughs> in the afternoon about social issues. But the only thing I can say about this film that gave me some mixed feelings is if this is a film that's supposed to raise consciousness about what it's like to be a teenage girl, I think it does a good job. If this is supposed to raise consciousness about abortion and abortion access in the United States, I'm not entirely sure that this girl's story is the best lens to do that. Because if you look at, um, I'm going to do like Christina, I have some <laughs> statistics. Right. Oh, good. The Guttmacher Institute in 2016 did a survey of people seeking abortion, and 59% were people who already had a child, and that 60% of the folks in that study were in their 20s, and only 12% were teens and 4% were minors. And so all of this is to say that this is an important narrative lens. And I would also love to see a movie about a person who is deciding not to continue a pregnancy after having the experience of continuing a pregnancy and some of the decision-making behind that. Because I think that is a story that in popular film, when that question is on the table, the person tends to not choose an abortion. And I think yeah. that this helps round out the narrative because if if this movie is in the service of helping us nuance the idea of choice, then I think sometimes picking a teenage character doesn't push that as far as I think we need. Hmm. Well, there's um, it's not a film, but there was a TV show that recently went off the air called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And oh, yeah, the, I love that show. Yeah. Um, the best friend was an older woman who had uh, two teenage boys. She was married and she gets pregnant. And so she goes through that process of trying to figure out, will she have an abortion and will she not? And spoiler alert, she does have an abortion. And so there is like this storyline about what it means for her as a married mother of two deciding to terminate uh, a third pregnancy. So if anyone is interested in that, you can look for a crazy ex-girlfriend and um, try to find that storyline. 
One of the things that I thought for a movie that, as we've all said, kind of reflects, I guess, accurately. It's been a long time. I, I don't really have much contact with teenagers, but I, I'm sure it is accurate that just the kind of the failure to articulate anything and just that desire to just be in your own head and just like live with your own thoughts. I thought that the treatment of the relationship, like as we've said, you don't see the relationship that got her there. You, but when she is at an appointment with Planned Parenthood, she's asked in the in the the way that the the place that the title comes from about her relationships, whether her partners have forced her to have or persuaded her to have sex when she didn't want to, have refused to use birth control when she wanted to, have just you know have have done things that she didn't want to do, and. The revelation that that's her life is really powerful, I think, maybe because of the contrast. She still can't articulate that. She has no words. But after having built up this you know, defensive wall, that wall is brought down by that series of questions. And you know, I find that very moving and very scary because there's a recognition that this has been a situation for her, but there's no clear solution. And that's... I don't know, that's really hard to take, but it's it's in a weird way. It's weird to say this, but it's great to see because it's very confronting. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's interesting because I thought that that was clear from the beginning when we open and she's singing a song. Yeah. Um, but um, I, that moment definitely was um, powerful and I felt terrible for her. Yeah. You know, and she just, again, just can't, express herself fully in the way that she wants to. And so she feels kind of, well, I'm, I take it that she felt like a prisoner of her own emotions mm-hmm. a little bit. And hmm. the way her cousin Skylar helps to get them home. Yeah. Again, just the way that we have to sacrifice ourselves mm-hmm. um, for each other. It was very, it was very moving. Listeners, if you've seen the film, never, rarely, sometimes, always, let us know what you think. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right, it's time for our recommendations. Who would like to go first? I'll go first. I recently rewatched a film from 1961 called A Taste of Honey. It was a very groundbreaking British film. It's it was for it was a play before it was a movie, but it was groundbreaking because it was actually it was a play about and centered upon, as we say these days, a, a poor teenage girl that was written by a poor teenage girl. Sheena Delaney was, I think, 19 when she wrote the play about a 15, 16, 17-year-old girl who is in a terrible family situation. Her mother is kind of selfish, neglectful. They have to keep moving because her because of her mother. And she eventually, this movie is also, and the story was one of the first positive depictions in, a, in British cinema of a gay character, an openly gay character of an interracial relationship. It's also a story about a teenage pregnancy. And it's it's also set in Manchester, my hometown. It's it's a really interesting movie that I don't know, it it's not necessarily like a feel-good movie, although there are times when this girl who is incredibly smart, if she had any opportunity to to use that smartness and is very kind of powerful inside herself and is forced to, you know, make her own life. Um, you know, she does. And then it maybe, I don't know if we are asked to question whether this moment of freedom that she 
kind of experience is, is literally a moment or is just a, you know, a short couple of months in her in her life. But it's a really interesting, powerful movie, fantastic performance by Rita Tushingham, and uh, I really recommend A Taste of Honey. Sounds great. Nicole, what have you brought? I would like to recommend the book So We Can Glow by Lisa Cross Smith. And then Lisa is spelled L-E-E-S-A. And it is a collection of 42 short stories that explore women's desires, women's obsessions, women's um, nostalgia. It's really, really good. And obviously with 42 short stories, some, some are more like vignettes than actual short stories. But there are stories about the friendships between girls, the bonds between women. One story in particular I really liked called Teenage Dream Time Machine. And it's all text messages between these two women. Um, and so I think it's kind of like this new kind of epistolary work, you know, because now instead of sending letters to people, mm-hmm. we are sending texts. So that makes sense. But it's these two married women who are, you know, catching up with each other after one of their friends is has gone off on a... Um, a trip with a much younger man. Um, So they're talking about that and they're talking about their daughters who sneaked out. And so they're trying to figure out, you know, would they go back in time to be teenagers again? And so it's just this really interesting mix of nostalgia, the reality of marriage, getting older and becoming comfortable in yourself while also still trying to remember the girl that you were. So We Can Glow by Lisa Cross Smith. Excellent collection of short stories. Awesome. Mm. Marcia? This week, I am recommending a biography, a new book called Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner with the commemoration of the 19th Amendment. There will be a lot of books and a lot of hot takes, but (laughs) I think that this is probably one of the best ways of understanding the political strategy behind suffrage, the pervasive issue of racism within the suffrage movement, as well as some of the lesser known women who were part of the move to get women the vote, asterisks, only some women got the vote. (laughs) Um, But Helen Hamilton Gardner was this really fascinating character because she was incredibly smart. She published seven books. She wrote a lot of essays. There is a affair and scandal that gets her kind of banished from polite society. But she was very much resistant to some of the tropes of piety and temperance that was in the movement. And I think the idea of a woman being a free thinker in the 19th and 20th century publicly is really fascinating. And the author, Kimberly Hamlin, is a fellow historian who is just very good at bringing all of the threads together. So I highly recommend Freethinker, Sex Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. That sounds really great. I'm going to recommend a place uh, this week. (laughs) So this would be a great time to buy airline tickets because (laughs) a lot of airlines are offering free changes to your reservations if you book during the month of March. So I just got back from a week in Baja, California, sir. I would like to recommend the city of La Paz, which is about two hours north of Los Cabos, which is where I flew into. I got to swim with so much magical sea life, which is a thing that I really like doing on vacation. 
The water was quite cold, so I <laughs> recommend booking your tickets for the fall when the sea life is still out and about, but the water's going to be a little warmer. So whale sharks, largest fish in the world. In fact, the largest non-whale animal in the world. I go back and forth on which is the more impressive claim, <laughs> but I I got to swim with them. They're sharks, but they don't really have teeth, so you're allowed to be closer to them than you would a lot of other kinds of sharks. <laughs> um, I also got to swim with sea lions, which was really cool. And in general, La Paz just has a really otherworldly and magical landscape if you like mountains and desert and also like crystal clear blue waters. I had so much fun driving around the area and it was unlike any place that I visited before in Mexico or elsewhere. So highly recommend visiting La Paz, lots of good food and a lot less, I would say, um, spring breaky and touristy <laughs> than Los Cabos and some of the other hot spots that folks go to in Mexico for spring break and drank some really good mezcal. So I'd like to celebrate <laughs> the last trip that I'm probably going to take for quite some time. <laughs> oh. That's our show for this week. Thank you to Lindsay Cradwell who produced this episode, to Rachel Allen, who is also celebrating her last week as our production assistant, and to Rosemary Belson, who recorded me here in D.C. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.